at the end of the day, I was never going to become a person who was raised in Afghanistan because I'm not. I was raised in Canada and that's always going to be a part of, of my identity as well. My identity was dictated by war. There's a sadness knowing you're never going to fully fit in to one side or the other and you're always going to be of two different worlds. I identify with my story, not with not necessarily with being more Canadian or more Afghan, but I am an Afghan who's part of that war story that meant losing access to my country. You're listening to The Follow, a multicultural podcast from creative agency Sanders Wingo, where we talk to up-and-coming BIPOC creators, movement makers, and thought leaders who we follow. These are influencers who you might not know about, but we think you should. We talk to them about their work, worldview, and how they use their platform. But we also cover race, identity, and all things culture in a format designed to help us all get smarter about culture. If you like the show, please do us a huge favor and rate and review it on your favorite podcast platform. Help us boost the show's visibility so other people can find and enjoy it too. In this episode, we speak with Mina Sharif, Afghanistan-born producer, human rights advocate, and storyteller, dedicated to broadening the world's perspective of her country of origin and bettering the lives of Afghans. Hosting this conversation with Mina is Dana Satterwhite, Executive Creative Director of Sanders Wingo. In their conversation, Mina talks about the beauty of Afghanistan. She shares details of her experience returning there for work and volunteer efforts as a young woman including time spent producing the Afghan version of Sesame Street. That specific endeavor and those many years impacted her in ways she never expected and continue to shape who she is today. And now, here's Dana. Well, thank you. Thank you, Mina Sharif, for being here uh, on another episode of The Follow. And, you know, honestly, I just want to have a nice conversation with you to get your perspective on the world and to share it out with as many people as we can, because that's very important. For starters, who's Mina Sharif? A pleasure to be here. First of all, thank you so much for having me. I love the premise of your, of your talks and it's an in, in honor to share my story. My name is Mina Sharif. I am an Afghan Canadian. I was born in Afghanistan, raised in Canada because I am from a family of refugees. We were exiled in the 80s and I grew up in Canada. In 2005, as an adult, I, or as a young adult anyway, I returned to Afghanistan and became part of the post-war, I don't know, what we, whatever we were calling it then. I think it was just um, the situation was a rebuilding and I wanted to be a part of that. So I was in Afghanistan from 2005 to 2019. And um, I'm back in Canada with having had the expectation to return to Afghanistan, but unfortunately, I think I'm in exile once again. <laughs> this time, this time as an adult, unable to return to to my home. That's not all of who I am, but essentially, that's that's the part of my identity that that I think is currently most definitive of what I do and where my passions lie right now. Okay, talk to us a little bit more about that. About how you how you see yourself identifying and and the things that maybe you're identifying with currently that that drive you and motivate you to move forward in the way that you do i think because of circumstances and i i like to believe that circumstances are always a result of things that are supposed to happen but circumstances led me to afghanistan uh, i wasn't necessarily someone who grew up planning that i was very comfortable in my canadian life I had an interest in radio, which maybe I was saved from that as radio <laughs> slowly disappears. But I, I didn't think that what I did and what I was interested in would take me back to Afghanistan. In fact, I didn't think anyone could go back to Afghanistan because the, the Taliban were there when I was growing up. So I didn't see it as an option. So circumstances are really so definitive of what my life ended up being so far. I, I ended up going to Afghanistan on a volunteer position and staying because I suddenly got this thirst for more of Afghanistan as soon as I landed. It was almost immediate 
immediately upon landing that I realized what I thought I knew I didn't know. I felt different when I landed. I think I just shattered the, the sheltered idea that I had of just being easily described as an Afghan Canadian. Oh, I'm more Canadian than I am Afghan. That's where I grew up, end of story. And landing in Afghanistan changed all that for me. And there was, of course, the almost 15 years spent there. And where I am now is I feel like I'm a voice that kind of speaks for that, for that realization I had, that what we think and what we see from over here is very different from the reality of Afghanistan. And I think with the recent collapse of government and Taliban takeover, we're once again at this at the kind of a repeat of history. And I remember back then, you know, not really hearing anyone say, you all have the wrong idea about Afghanistan. We I just bought into the story that, oh, it's in it's a sad story and it's it's a violent story, and that's that. And I just feel like I have things to say about my personal experience or at least what's inside me, what I feel. If I can get that across to people, they'll understand that we have Afghanistan wrong. We had it wrong that time. We have it wrong this time. And I don't want this country and its beauty to be lost in under the title of sad story or war story, again, because that's not what it is. Paint a picture for me then, if you will, of of what it is, if beyond the sadness and the violence that perhaps people, you know, maybe that's where perceptions go and they, then that's where they stop. Yeah, see, that's the thing is even, even just the wording that we all use, that I did as well, you know, who is Afghanistan beyond war and beyond sadness and beyond tragedy? Why do we start with that and think that we're, we have to penetrate beyond that? We have to break a shell and get into that. The idea that we're defined initially as tragic and war-torn and violent, that's the problem in the first place. War is not who Afghanistan is. War is what has happened to Afghanistan. So for a country to be hit by a, an earthquake, it's not an earthquake country. It's a country that had an earthquake happen to it. And so this violence and this sadness and this just you know failure upon failure of leadership is what's been done to Afghanistan. And so the identity isn't you know, something that we should look for beyond this. It's it, we, you, what we need to do is tear away the, the, the idea of what happened to Afghanistan being who it is. So what happens if we do that is we allow ourselves to see it as a country with its own culture and its own people and its own beauty. And, and I feel like, it, unfortunately, that's something I have to bring you know, to people's attention, including even Afghans who have grown up outside, who've only got headlines to see. And if you are of Afghan descent, you might have stories from your parents who were exiled maybe decades ago. Those are outdated, you know, and Afghanistan didn't stop. No, it didn't, it didn't cease to exist because war was going on. It didn't, I didn't suddenly come back to life because the international community joined it. It was, it was a country of living, breathing people and culture and history that dates back thousands of years. So for it to be dismissed as a violent war country is something, um, that's the tragedy itself, that we've dismissed it and not looked any further than that or thought we're, I think we credit ourselves for, for seeing people in a war zone as humans with their own stories but we shouldn't. It's, it's our fault for thinking that that's, that's a side story or that's a beyond story. That's the real story. I think that's a struggle I have is that I too thought of it as a sad war story and that I was looking beyond that. But um, I just look at that differently now. When and how were you able to make that shift? For me, it was immediate. I mean, I'm of Afghan... I don't even want to say Afghan descent. I am Afghan. So when I landed there, I think a lot of emotions hit me very instantaneously. It was a matter of being somewhere that felt immediately like home. And I don't think I'd realized that I didn't feel home in the West until I landed in Afghanistan. And, and it was just this being from the soil that I was standing on, hearing languages, my languages spoken even just at the airport, even on the plane going in, it was 
that was a feeling of home that I'd never experienced before. I didn't know that I hadn't experienced it. I didn't know I was missing it. So that was very instant for me. And then I was just kind of in awe. I thought I was, I had been so limited to National Geographic and the news and what, and it was all in real life. It was real life. It wasn't just this cute moment captured of a little Afghan boy shining shoes. And like this, you know, I got to meet the real young boy and hear his humor and hear his story. And as sad as it may have been, he's got a whole personality and he's got, he knows his family history and he knows, he knows hundreds of years worth of, of Afghan history. So I learned, but I didn't learn from a book or a job or, or anything, but landing and absorbing. And it's all there for, for the taking. It's a matter of experiencing something to, to really feel it and to, and it's not complicated. It's not just Afghans who felt it. I think anyone who's been to Afghanistan has, has felt the magic of this country because it really catches you off guard after what you've heard prior to arriving. That's wonderful. How then, I would love to take a trip there at some point I've never been. Um, your tour guide. How do you, how does one get others to, to view things objectively and again, to want to explore further without having to necessarily go there, you know, to physically travel there? Well, I think like in, in the past, it was kind of, that's just the way the world was. If we haven't been there, we don't really know much and we can only guess and we can only just have, hold space it, to understand that different cultures exist and that different histories exist and there's more to life than what's right in front of us in, in our little circles. But, you know, we're also stuck in that mindset despite the increase in opportunities to share. You know, when if we're not gonna use things like social media and just this, the flatness of the world where we all have access to each other, we are still stuck in just sharing narratives that are super simplified and that are very Western centric. And, you know, we're looking at, a, at the colonized view of the entire world. And if we wanna stay in that, we're gonna stay in it. But there is also space to go beyond that. Unfortunately, it takes a little more work. We have to find these stories, they're there because now people, for example, like you all have the opportunity to share the lesser, less headlined stories of different countries or of different cultures. But it's on one hand, we have to hope that, you know, media will improve and sort of the whole culture of how we share stories can improve. But on the other hand, why wait for that to happen? Why wait for the people who have wanted to keep us sort of ill-informed of each other and thinking less of the poor countries and more of the of the rich countries. And if, if we're gonna depend on them for our understanding of the world, then we're kind of at fault as well. I think we have an opportunity to go a little bit beyond. You know, if I hear about a country and I don't know much about it, it doesn't take much for me to get online and, and I don't know, watch YouTubes of people who have gone or learn from people who are from that country throw the hashtag into, into Instagram. It's not a lot of work, but if we're gonna be lazy about it and ask you know, major news channels to tell us what a country is like, then we're gonna be stuck thinking poor is sad and tragic and the rich people know, they know what's up. <laughs> so it, it's gonna take some work on, every, on an individual basis. Do you find yourself in this, knowing all of that, you know, knowing that the, the media sort of you know, controls the narrative uh, in many cases. Do you find yourself constantly in this, you know, playing this role of educator and having to, you know, like enlighten those around you? It's a burden on me because I'm so insulted that it should exist, that I should have to use words like humanize when I talk about the people of where I'm from, you know, and, and to see that look of surprise when I say, oh, we have this, you know, quote unquote, sort of Western-ish thing too. Like, oh, girls do sports. Oh, really? Isn't that amazing? Well, no, it's not, you know? And, and that's, so it, it is a burden in the sense that I, I shouldn't have to be saying any of this, but at the same time, I understand because like I said, it's all I had going into Afghanistan. It's all I had was headlines and very, very, very outdated stories. Outdated in the sense that, yeah, I know that I knew 
that there were eras in Afghanistan that were a little more what, what through the Western lens we might think looked free. I'll give the example of the miniskirts. We harped on it so much just as diaspora, like once upon a time in our country, it looked, it looked Western like this. And although it's a horrible example, because women's clothing does not represent freedom, it did have, it did ha give me this like attachment to a past. And I think another thing that happened when I went to Afghanistan was I got to live in the present moment. And I realized that a lot of Afghanistan is sold in eras. Like this was their golden era. And then there was their war era. And so even though people think they're telling the story of Afghanistan, they're not. They're just telling stories of uh, visuals that represent different, different times. And very, very seldom are they asking Afghans how they have actually felt or reacted to those eras over, the, over time. Um, so I do end up speaking on behalf of Afghanistan, first and foremost, as a country with people and nuances and different different faces and different religions, believe it or not, not everyone's Muslim in Afghanistan, but you know, how many, how many times can I blow your mind in, in, in five minutes? That's the challenge for me to, for me to hold it in and just say, please let me give you a few points to start on. And then please, after that, as an individual, as a, as a citizen of the world, please take the time to listen more carefully about Afghanistan. Please take the time to hear about Afghanistan through Afghan voices. Please be an ally for a country that's suffering, be an ally by first and foremost, learning that we are more than a war story. That's great. I love the notion of allies. And again, I'm assuming members of the black community, for instance, in the last two years, roughly, have been, and, and you know, for much longer, have embraced this idea of allies in other communities. And I think for Afghanistan, it's been more of late with everything that's kind of unfolded in 2021. Part of what we're trying to do with this podcast is to get people to just be more self-aware when it comes to these things. Like, again, how, as somebody who's out there, you know, fighting that fight, you know, kind of being you, you know, sort of, you know, if you have an agenda, you know, getting that to be your agenda, how, how do we encourage that? How do we facilitate that outside of a format like this? How can the you know, ordinary person who may just go, be going about his or her business, what can they do to just be a little more proactive when it comes to things like that? Yeah, it's a tall ask you know, to ask people to, on their own agency, go ahead and, and research a country that they don't really know anything about. I think it's a tall order. So a lot of people who come from where I come from, meaning that they have seen Afghanistan in, in a more detailed way and, and have a bigger uh, understanding or a more detailed understanding of, of the intricacies and, the, and the, his, the rich history and whatnot, it's very tempting to sort of be upset that no one's taking the time. But I, I like to have some compassion for the fact that uh, we just don't have the access. So maybe I could start conversations based on what might interest that person or that audience to then go on and learn more on their own. Like you talked about, you know, the last two years in the black community and, you know, there was a mural painted by some of my revolutionary artist friends in Afghanistan that painted solidarity with George Floyd. His uh, mural was painted in the city center. And that was Afghans understanding the plight of people who are mistreated and just that there alone, I think, is not for me to say, look how great Afghanistan is and how, uh, how focused we are on things that are going on in the West. That's not the message. The message is just like for a split second to realize that there are people there who suffer and feel your pain as well. And that just like is something that has always brought people just down to where I'm at when I, uh, they, it brings people to where I'm coming from when I speak of my love for Afghanistan, when I share small bits like that, when I give a small anecdote that kind of fits because it's not fair to ask someone to, to generate interest and generate curiosity out of thin air based on what's been given to them. So I do put a little focus on that, uh, on trying to make it fit. I spoke to a school not long ago and talked about some 
you know, little adventures I'd had with kids making s'mores in Afghanistan. And it just, you know, I hate the word humanize about humans. It's ridiculous to have it, but it is what we're doing. We forget each other are humans because we've turned each other into headlines and stories. You know, Afghanistan, after the tsunami in Indonesia, donated dried fruits, sent blood, sent clothing with, with no money at all. I mean, and that's citizens, that's not the government necessarily. So these are things that I think that are important because it's not anyone's fault that they can't see beyond the headline if that's all they're given. So for me, it's a slow and steady sort of race. It's not that I can demand compassion. I don't think that's how it works. I think we start small. We start to sort of create little connections that pique people's interest. And then I trust them to sort of open up their mind a little more, be more open to expanding on, on what they know about Afghanistan. And I know they'll find beauty when they look for it. It's all over. It's not hard to find. I didn't look very far and it wasn't just about physically being there. I'm not there right now. And I, I don't, I don't have to work very hard to hear about incredible stories of people helping each other despite the current circumstances. That's beautiful. I suspect that you've been having probably just a steady stream of conversations about all of these things for the last few months, maybe, you know, probably, you know, much longer. Are you ever met with, I don't want to say resistance, but do you find that like when you open a dialogue, is it usually easy? Do you find yourself having to convince people of, you know, the beauty that's there, or is it sort of just naturally understood and accepted? Oh, no, I'm always met with some, <laughs> some uh, challenges there. I think uh, there are a couple of issues. Firstly, as far as people who do know about Afghanistan, at least to a certain point, they've got their mind made up about a lot of things. And I'm dismissed often as naive or romanticizing the idea of Afghanistan because I'm bringing up sort of really beautiful images I'm, I'm bringing up that are that are factual and true and things that I've seen and things that I've experienced and people I've met. So Afghans who have left, I think there are one category and I feel like, I feel like they're holding a lot of trauma that doesn't allow them to hear necessarily positive about a place that they can no longer be in a place that they may have, I guess, essentially dismissed to a certain point as somewhere that's unfortunately gone in out of their life and unfortunately too violent and they've moved on. And so it, it's uncomfortable for me to come back and say, it's beautiful. We can't ignore it. Stop. You know, because these are people who are dealing with their own stories. Now, non-Afghans also kind of hesitate. I think in general, if I'm if I might say, anyone focusing on the positive of some of a story that's that's been sold as so tragic is dismissed as naive pretty often because we think that anyone who knows negative stats and, and spews them out sounds intelligent to everybody. But someone taking the time to say, you know, here are 10 incredible facts that you may not have known is dismissed as idealistic and kind of, oh, she's, She's bubbly and animated about Afghanistan. And I know what that is. I know that's an attempt to like dumb down the information because everyone feels smarter when they're deciding what's wrong with the situation. And I, I, I just am of a different mindset. If you can fixate completely on the negative and be accurate, maybe I'm choosing, and you're ignoring that, that positive side of Afghanistan. Well, maybe I'm just choosing to talk about the positive and I'm not unaware of the negative side, but do you not have enough access to the horrible things that are happening in Afghanistan? Like, do I really need to use the one voice I have to add to that and tell you that Afghanistan has had tragedy after tragedy and was, you know, mistreated by people claiming to be countries and leaders claiming to be allies and all of the political mess that's happened there. You can find that. I think the issue is you can't find the other truth which is the positive and the, and the identity of Afghanistan. And if, if I choose to focus on that, that's not me being idealistic. That's me just doing the opposite of what you're doing and focusing on the positive as aggressively as you're focusing on the negative. So yeah, I met with this every time. And it is a choice. It is. It is a choice. What you, which 
direction you you know you want to lean it and i think you know does it make it any less true and i think that's what people aren't used to they you can you can spew out negative stats and you don't have to say anything positive but apparently you can't give a positive side to a story and it be considered credible unless you throw in the caveat of but also it's super tragic and super sad every time i say you know 10 great things i met with come on that's not the, the whole story. Well, you know what? That negative listing is also not the whole story. So it's on me. I get to decide which part of the story I feel has not been shared. And it's the positive side that hasn't. That's wonderful. Talk to me a little bit more about, you discovered it, you say when you landed in Afghanistan and, and you know, it all came kind of flooding back. Do you identify, you know, going from Canada to Afghanistan, did you, you know, kind of close that door or like, you know, seal that chapter and then move on to the next? So unfortunately, diaspora or let's say refugee kids, if, especially from, you know, a war affected country, you don't get to do, you know, like there are certain countries you could be from and move uh, and your family moves somewhere else, let's say for better job opportunities. And there exists the opportunity to go back and visit. There exists the opportunity to feel connected to your background, perhaps because um, you know, your parents are not traumatized that they left, they just left for better opportunities. So they want you to maintain that connection. When you're from a, a war affected country, there's a lot of blockage from that identity because you're also part of a family that's had to leave it. So they've got a lot of heavy, um, I think blocks again uh, with, with how the countries move forward. You can't really be connected to the present of it beyond the headlines of the news. So. I would say that growing up in Canada, I had just that. Then I went to Afghanistan and was flooded with that part of my identity. But at the end of the day, I was never going to become a person who was raised in Afghanistan because I'm not. I was raised in Canada and that's always going to be a part of, of my identity as well. My identity was dictated by war. This war has affected people who you can see either have you know, lost family members, lost limbs, lost their homes, lost money and what's happening now uh, are suffering famine. But there's also like a real, there's a trickle effect. And we are clapping and cheering for the Afghans who got to leave and landed somewhere safe. But I know what that means for them. I know that they're going to have the same identity issues that my generation had. And they really, there's a sadness to not not ever knowing you're never going to fully fit in to one side or the other and you're always going to be of two different worlds and certainly a lot of times when i was in afghanistan i thought oh i'm i'm too canadian for this i'm cold let's get <laughs> can't deal with this wood heater so we have we have our we ha we are who we are based on what what happened to us and no i never got to be fully anything but my i most certainly I identify with my story, not with, not necessarily with being more Canadian or more Afghan, but I am an Afghan who's part of that war story that meant losing access to my country. One of the questions that was posed was, what are you most proud of? And your answer, I'll read it now, says, I'm most proud of my decision at a young age, 24, to move to Afghanistan, despite how foreign it would be to me that I trusted myself to be able to handle whatever challenges it brought to me and that I wanted more than anything to be of service to people who had suffered so much. All right, it's a beautiful answer. Would you answer that question the same way today? Yes, but I think it would, the ending would change. It's, it's, I just, I look at Afghans as just this misunderstood community of people who have suffered so much. I mean, those are my own words and they have suffered so much, but I don't like that it becomes their identity when we, when we frame it that way. These are people who have persevered, not just suffered so much. So I learned from them how to just live, live in the moment because they never knew what was gonna happen and they didn't just suffer the Taliban. They suffered war before that and war before that. And now we're on to the next, you know, stage of suffering. So they taught me, I am proud that I went, but looking back, I don't think that it was necessarily uh, 
I don't, I don't like the words like brave or ooh, risk-taking. What it was, was a gift. It was a gift for me to learn from the country and what it gave to me. Again, it's just a matter of shifting your perspective, you know, and I think going from a slightly, slightly more negative approach to, you know, something just a little more positive. I think it's beautiful. You also said you don't want the world to know you. You want the world to know your experience. Yeah. Can you expound upon that a little bit for me? So, yeah, I just, I just don't think it's about me. It's about, I almost think of it as a lens, a pair of glasses that I got to wear. I got to see life in, in the West. And then I got to take these glasses and land in Afghanistan. And because I've seen both and I've seen the, so much of the misunderstanding that happens because of the lack of access to each other, it's that message of misunderstanding and like sort of developing compassion to each other that I want to share. What's my story? My story is just that I saw both. Yeah, it's interesting to people because very few have had my opportunity. But if the story is about me, then it's more about what I think. And, the, and what I want is to create a space for people to expand on what they think. I'm trying to, in everything that I say or do about Afghanistan, I just want people to have a to pause and think that they may have more to learn about Afghanistan. So that's why I don't like the story to be about me and what I did and where did I work and what did I do? I, I, I enjoy talking about it because people can sometimes connect more to the country if they imagine, for example, projects that I worked on that I, as I describe it to them and that's great. But the story is that, is that we don't have the full story. I did want to talk to you a bit more about your, yeah. <laughs> thank you. You know, I, cause I, I do think that's interesting. I do think it's important. I do think sometimes that just being able to, to your point earlier, you know, describe to people what it was like living there and what you did as a job, you know, from nine to five or, you know, eight to eight or whatever the hours may be, those types of things can be really eye-opening for people in a way that to you, it's just, you, you roll your eyes because you're just like, well, of course that exists. Yeah. You know, of course that was my reality because, you know, again, we're all just humans and it's just yeah. another part of the, the planet. But for some people, it is very foreign for whatever reason. But I want to ask you right now, i state some very obvious things. You're a woman, you are Afghan, you are Canadian, you know, so many communities to be a part of. And you've talked about your, you know, connection to your country of origin. But do you find that what I find sometimes is that one day we're over here and we're talking about any given community. And then before that, before that, you know, whatever the issue is at hand, before that can get be resolved or before we can sort of have closure or before we can grieve. It's the next community. And then we move to that thing. And then before we can get to that, it's the next community. And it's just so I speak, I think, for the Black community, the Latinx community, the Afghan community, the female community, the LGBTQIA community. It's just, you know, so you, you are identifying with many communities, yeah. you know? How is that? I mean, and for me, like, and I just would just, to me, you're just Mina. You know, you're Mina Sharif, the human being who happens to be all of these different things connected to all these different, you know, and, and every community wants to take, take ownership, you know, or take when you're doing beautiful things and then they embrace. And then when you're not, of course, that you sort of get dismissed. But I'm just curious how being a part of these various communities, if you find it challenging at all. If I'm oversimplifying, you know, I just want you to talk about that a little bit. Um, thank you. That's actually great. I think with being Afghan in general, we're in this little, you know, 15 minutes. I think it's kind of even fading from the tragedy of August 15th to now discussing refugees. My guess is the next thing will be about how refugees are settling. So everyone's kind of moving on in the storyline as it, as it develops in their world and in their scope. As, and I think the title that probably gives me the most 
that I struggle with the most is Afghan woman, like the two of those things together, because Afghan woman is not like being a woman from anywhere else, especially right now. Uh, everyone's kind of got their mind made up about how they, they feel about Afghan women. Do they feel really sorry for Afghan women for how they're suffering at the hands of like these men who were demonizing, even though that's not, <laughs> even it's, it's so inaccurate because it's not coming from within our own community. Anyway, that's besides the point. An Afghan woman is highly tokenized right now. And I get calls from news agencies saying, can we interview you and talk to you about A, B, C, and D in Afghanistan, which I'm not connected to at all. And it's just because I'm an Afghan woman. And I think that we all feel very, I don't know, it's not a good feeling. I think that what what's what I've seen happen from when I got to Afghanistan to now is we're not only tokenized, but we're not even, we're supposed to go with the flow of whatever suits the oftentimes economic interests of the people who are talking to us. Like when it was all the money going into Afghanistan, Afghan women were heroes of their own stories. And let's talk to you about this project. And we've got eight women you know, on the radio, on TV, we've got this many women doing this and we were in pamphlets and we were success stories for the donors. And now we're victims again. And so now we are supposed to be on TV crying about the tragedy in our, either in our homeland that we're away from or while we're there. And I don't see a lot of other communities be asked constantly every question beginning with an, as an Afghan woman. Well, why not as Mina? Because my story as Mina is very different than an Afghan woman who's living under the poverty line in a, in a provincial area of the country, or as a highly successful Afghan woman entrepreneur business owner, or as an Afghan diaspora who's never been to Afghanistan. Like we're not given the opportunity to have unique stories as Afghan women right now, because uh, right now we're supposed to be either tragic or like defying all odds and being heroic. And if we don't fit either of those two categories, we don't make the cut. So that title is really bothering me right now. I, I, don't, I don't appreciate it. I don't trust it. I think anyone who's, who says anything to me that starts with as, as an Afghan woman, I, I'm no longer interested in, in really discussing it. Okay, well, I hope I'll... Did not just do that. Don't worry, did, I didn't catch it. So <laughs> don't worry. It's 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 the entire approach to begin with. You know, it's it's very much uh, motivation in the first place. That's where I can sense it, and we can tell it. And a lot of women, I think, do say yes to opportunities like that because, you know, if you ignore a group for a whole long time and then you suddenly speak to them or acknowledge them, they're not all going to know they're being. They're not all going to feel what I said I feel as far as like recognizing it as some kind of like tokenization or that they're asking you to put on a face or, or put on a show. They, they may feel like this is an opportunity to speak. And a lot of times we have to take these opportunities just in case someone gets some of the message that we want to get across. So I don't appreciate that that's how it's approached. But at the end of the day, I guess at least we're talking to some Afghan women. For sure. And I, I think... What I love about what you said, I, I think it lines up very much with my own personal beliefs, is that, you know, a lot of times we, we just talk about X community, you know, this community and that community. And, you know, what people fail to realize is, or they fail to acknowledge, is just that the community is made up of individuals. And I think there may be similar experiences between this Afghan woman and this Afghan woman or this Afghan person and this Afghan person, but they're never quite the same and they're unique. And I think that's my desire to encourage people to understand that, you know, there's no monolithic approach or representation to any group. So, and, I, and, and yeah, <laughs> it's not like, you, no. you're like, you're like, <laughs> yeah, we seem to be okay with it in the context of the west and not to like harp on the west but like i never hear anyone say as an american woman i mean you might say as a woman or you know and that that sort of allows for the answer to come from an individual place right or when you say as an american yeah sure as me and my american experience it doesn't really like hone down to a title in the way that 
Afghan woman does, because when you say as an Afghan woman, you, you, it does sound like you're asking me to speak on behalf of all Afghan women versus if you're asking in a more general title or as an Afghan, I'm comfortable with because my Afghan experience is obviously only mine. But when you put those two together, the Afghan and woman, I know what you're doing. <laughs> so I'm not going to speak for everybody. I love that. Talk to me a little bit about just being a producer. We produced a children's show, an independent one, that focused on Afghan children across the country. Afghanistan is often just dismissed, even size-wise, like, oh, it's about the size of Texas. Well, <laughs> okay, but it's a country with 34 provinces, and it's got more than 30 languages, different ethnicities, different religions. And one thing that was lacking within Afghanistan is the opportunity to see that about each other. And so we got from nothing sort of developed this idea for a, for a show where the children hosted each other, you know, not saying this is what we do here that's different from you because they didn't know other communities. They just said, this is what I do in a day. This is what I play. This is what I eat. This is what our city looks like. These are our favorite foods. And it just was, it was so organic. It wasn't hard from the production side because we let the kids take, uh, take the reins. And it was the most beautiful experience I've ever had. I got to learn more about the country than most people in the country have had an opportunity to um, experience. And to see that there is an entire world within Afghanistan uh, was a blessing. And it's because of production work, of being able to say there are messages that need to be put out to the rest of the country and the rest of the country needs to see and experience. Let's produce that. Let's produce an item. Let's produce a, a thing. Let it be art. Let it be music. Let it be a TV show or a radio show. And so for me, production is this beautiful place where you have a need that is met through creativity. You know, um, I'm curious about being a volunteer. I think it takes a certain, like some people are cut out for volunteering and others aren't necessarily. So just those types of pursuits in your life, volunteering and literacy, and you've done things that are very, you know, child oriented. And I think that's, personally, I think that's wonderful because, you know, I think it's, it's so important to, you know, foster nurturing environments from a very early age. So just talk a little bit about that, please. Thank you. Like I, the volunteering, I mean, honestly, it's a slippery slope because it's a really beautiful experience and you can get really hooked on it. Uh, the, the, initial, the initial opportunity that got me to Afghanistan was a, was a volunteer internship. That was just by coincidence. But when you get to Afghanistan, there's so much around you in a country that has been put in such difficult situations that the opportunities, you literally, in my opinion, you kind of have to avoid them if you don't want them. And I'm not someone who wanted to avoid it. So it was easy. It didn't, I didn't have to look for who I might be able to partner up with to do so. Afghans themselves have this nature that I really would like to say where as poorly as they may be doing, as, as much as they may be struggling, they're always looking for who's doing a little worse, like who may have a little less than them. It's just in, in Afghan nature to do so. So I would be working with someone who you'd look at from a, you know, with the naked eye, this person needs help and support and opportunity that they haven't been given, but they would always look at what they do have and think, you know, my neighbor three doors down, they've got this many kids and they need this kind of opportunity. So it, it was such a beautiful and organic cycle in Afghanistan to continue that nature of volunteering. After the fall of, no, before the fall of Kabul, as the cities were falling to the Taliban, we were all really confused and then and including in Afghanistan, they didn't know what was going on. So a lot of people from the other major cities migrated to Kabul, the capital, which didn't really occur to most of us that that was just going to fall so quickly. So we had a lot of internally displaced people in these camps. And it was so easy to set up a volunteer initiative to give emergency food rations to them. As much as people people complicate things, it can also be really simple. I called a friend who I trusted, who had access to a, a restaurant that she was, that she ran and we did a GoFundMe. We got the money to her. The staff volunteered to buy everything, cook everything and distribute everything. And we had 
a, a mass, mass, mass distribution. And it took very little from each individual, but as a group, it got a lot done. So just once you experience that, that's, it's a really kind of an addictive sort of feeling. Once you understand that it just takes a couple of people who, who have no goal beyond getting some kind of job done, you'll finish a project and you'll think, well, what can we do next? Because that was simple. That was easy. That didn't need to be complicated. It's not, like I said, it's a slippery slope. It's hard to live off of <laughs> volunteering your time, but Afghans showed me that, that, that's, that that's the way to live, that that's the way to live to support whoever has less in any way you can. Just being, being kind and using whatever resources you have to help those around you. And never getting stuck in, well, I mean, of course there are people who did, but for the most part, people who were, had more challenges in Afghanistan, I found that they rarely got stuck in a place of, I'm, I'm done, I'm good, I have a job now. It was very often, even if not necessarily serving the community as a whole, they're always helping their, their own family members who need support, or maybe they lived in the capital and they had family in the provinces that they were supporting, but it was a rare, on rare occasion that, that I would see greed outside of certain circles. We're not gonna talk about the government. <laughs> that was fine. Um, where are your energies focused now? So I think I'm like, I'm somewhere between that emergency mode that we got in around the summer and the dust kind of settling for me to decide how to continue, where to continue. For me personally, I because I have these ties to Afghanistan itself directly, I find it difficult to focus on newcomer refugees. I do support teaching an English class with some of them. I, I That's just to feed my soul, to be around Afghans and to say to them, I, I'm not someone who's just guessing what Afghanistan's like. I, you know, let's talk about what street you lived on and let's talk about, you know, this little, we have a little nostalgia together even for a few moments. That's great. But because I have the ties to Afghanistan, I feel a deep sense of responsibility to, to get anything that we can get done, done. Like get support for some initiatives that we're working on. One we're calling a sewing circle where women who were employed we're the breadwinners of their families, oftentimes really big families, oftentimes widows were supporting their families through things like a cleaning service company. It's, it's not about what, about defining what the Taliban will or won't allow. It's simply not possible right now for them to go clean offices that are not open, end of story. So these women don't have a means to support their family. And so what we did is raised money, very minimal, to buy them new state-of-the-art sewing machines and the materials and tons of fabric and the scissors and the extension cord and the whole bit, as well as a really good teacher who right from scratch sort of teaches them the entire concept of clothing for women, for girls, for men, because tailoring is always gonna be a need in the country. So these women are sort of trained in a new livelihood it took, again, very little funding and very little manpower. There's me, another friend, another Afghan friend who lived in Afghanistan before, and a woman in Afghanistan. That's it. The three of us have a WhatsApp chat group, and boom, we made a round of women. First round happen. We got our second round funded. We're currently shopping for the... Because as soon as the women were in class, there was a lineup of other women saying, please let me join. I, I, don't, I can't go to school anymore. I don't have any way to feed my family or I, I can't go to work. Can my daughter who was in school come and learn this trade? And it's a trade that does get passed on through generations. So we felt really good about it being a skill that could be passed on as well. That round two has just been funded. So we're shopping for the materials, getting ready to get the women started and trying to fund a third round for it as well. And it's just happened pretty, like I said, organically, because I have those personal ties, I'm able to connect donors to what's going on, you know, share videos, show them photos, help them see what they're doing, help them meet who they're supporting. And I think that that helps people understand that they're making a direct impact when they support these small grassroots projects. It's a little difficult sometimes to make a donation to one of the big names and just hope that something trickles down to, to the Afghans who need it. 
So that's what I'm focused on right now. We also did a couple of food drives with a group called Asil, which I highly recommend if anyone wants to buy a food package for the, you know, for the Afghans who are at major risk of malnutrition or even death, that this is an Afghan owned and Afghan operated initiative that you can order food packages from an app or online. And you'll say, I wanna buy this package that includes A, B, C, D, E, and I'd like it delivered to a family here. And boom, they will follow up with you, show you exactly where it went. And um, yeah, these are the kind of things I'm supporting right now. It's emergency mode, definitely. Amazing. And you spoke to the, the fact that it's, like you said, yourself, one other, one other friend, and then one other, uh, another person you're connected with, but the three of you yeah, <clears throat> and a WhatsApp chat, you yeah. know, it's essentially just like really being impactful. What do you say to people who feel like I've heard this a lot. I want to help. I want to be an ally. I don't know what to do. It seems oh, we should do this, but uh, we can never make that happen. People who sort of like they start, yeah. but they don't, you know, you're just, a living, breathing testament to just make it happen, being able to manifest something, you know, to the benefit of many others. Go ahead. I think, um, thank you, first of all. I think, I think we just get stuck in this idea that it has to be a major, huge impact or else it doesn't really count for anything. And we get stuck in our, in our heads about that. And if we kind of look at it more as drop by drop, it becomes a river, you know, it's not about about so it's it's not on us and it shouldn't be on us as citizens to be supporting a country getting the food they need to survive it shouldn't be on us to create an economic opportunity for women who are supporting seven children each you know it's not that it's on us it's that others are failing and so when it's a smaller impact i'm not going to be mad at myself for how small it is i'm going to look at it as i'm doing the job of what is essentially should belong to the leadership of not just one country. Currently, I'm talking to the entire world when I say you should be supporting what's happening to, in Afghanistan. You, you know, everyone's really comfortable making a mess and then just disappearing. So uh, to me, anyone who shares a campaign, even if they can't donate to it, anyone who takes the time to hear about Afghan women, honestly, taking a step back, even anyone who takes the time to support the idea that Afghanistan is a country of nuances, of people, of, of different stories and individuals and not a monolith, that's already a step in, in correcting what's been done to Afghanistan. So by no means is it easy to like sort of gather yourself and do something, but all of these small steps lead to Afghanistan receiving acknowledgement for for the country it is, for the for the beauty that it has, for what's been done to it being separate from, from who actually lives and breathes in Afghanistan. If it's intimidating, um, I understand, but it should be intimidating. It's leadership's job to be doing what we're doing. So just step in where you can. That's a, a great piece of advice, what you just closed with. On your Twitter feed, your bio or your byline reads, my life truly began when I realized the world is not here for me. I am here for the world, which I think is, again, beautiful. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I, I don't know that, that I would keep it the world. I think I would adjust that to Afghanistan. I'm going to go back and edit that. <laughs> but um, there's just, it's, it's a, that what you were asking earlier, like how do people kind of take that first step to do something for someone else? or to do something for a community or to do something uh, in support of, of someone who may or may not need it. I don't think it necessarily has to be on a definitive scale of the world or Afghanistan or impoverished communities or anything. But I think once we allow ourselves to think even a little is something big, what I do really small for someone may be really big for them. Then you allow yourself to take that step and make someone's maybe day a little better, someone's life a little better, make a small donation where you can. That's the difference. You get kind of hooked on that and you realize the hidden truth in this world is that we get so much more when we give than the person who's receiving it, right? And so I understand that concept and that's why it is what it is. It's not that I, that I have an end goal. I'm just kind of, I see what I get from it. I'm very lucky to have that experience. I know that we're not 
all going to have experiences like this all the time. I'm not going to have it all the time. So we have to understand that giving comes in all different forms, but you're allowed to be addicted to it because you can, you can continue it, whether it's monetary, whether it's speaking up for people, whether it's just giving a compliment, like it's, that's what we're here for. That's the whole idea. We're here to give to each other so that we can experience the reward that comes from that. Talk to me a little bit about, uh, if you don't mind, Sesame Street. So it's called Bokche Sim Sim in Afghanistan. It is actually a dream that I had long before they arrived. I, I remember meeting the Minister of Education and bringing it up and he said, oh, we're in talks with them. I don't believe him, but Sesame Street did eventually come to Afghanistan and it was a beautiful experience. We had a very small team of producers. We worked out of one of the major TV stations, the biggest one in, in Afghanistan. And our head office was in New York and our team was in Afghanistan and we'd be on Skype talking to the, to the uh, you know, producers and like kind of getting there. It was very difficult because they couldn't physically come and be a part of things. And part of Sesame Street, there's animated, there's live action, and there's Muppets. So the live action is when you have real little kids kind of showing you something that is, you know, maybe it'll be a little kid going to a baseball game with his dad on, right, on uh, American Sesame Street. But in the Afghan Sesame Street, we had this wonderful opportunity to insert cultural awareness and literacy and, and all of these similar themes to what we have or what I saw in Sesame Street here. I grew up with it myself, so it was so familiar to me. It was also a Muppet specific to Afghanistan. There are two characters, a young girl and named Zeddy. It, it was a mix of two worlds and it really, really, really worked because the way that Sesame Street develops their content is, is so welcoming to the viewer that it actually became quite a hit between, not just with kids, but with adults too, a lot of whom had missed opportunities for literacy studies or studying at all and were, were illiterate or just enjoyed kind of the funny Muppets and speaking in, in the language and it was all educational. There was actually a, a riot in a jail and I don't know if this is 100% accurate but word on the street was the guards of the jail were distracted watching Sesame Street on, on TV. <laughs> And we're a little late addressing the riot. I don't know if it's true, but I think it gives our show a bit of street cred that, that we like to claim. But it was, it was very well received. And it was a pleasure to, to work on, on that show, just seeing how we could, I would say, Afghanize the lessons because they were very, they were very, very great about making it something that was meaningful to the kids who watched it and that they saw themselves in it. That's wonderful. I love the idea of uh, localizing it, you know, and, and making it true to uh, like bringing a level of authenticity. Uh, at the same time, I love that there's a universality to the content and just this, this notion of just being like children are children, you know, and just this sort of acceptance and love and kindness. You know, I think all of that is sort of transcendent for me. So. That's, it sounds, sounds like that was a part of your experience. It was. Those themes are, are just beautiful and it's so wonderful, like you said, that they localize it. There was one that we were filming about getting excited for a younger sibling, just to encourage like that kind of exci excitement in a kid who can sometimes be confused that, they're, that there's going to be another sibling in their home. And the head office was like, you have to film that again or no, it's wrong. Where's the hospital scene of the child being born? And I had to get to say like, guys, no, kids are mostly not born in hospitals in rural Afghanistan. They're born at home. And it was like, ah, right. You know, so they care, but like, it's still like we're going through, we're, we, we have a responsibility to reflect it locally. I mean, uh, how a script uh, is developed, that's where we're, that's where we have to, um, where my job was wonderful is that I got to say, well, no, we ha that has to be adjusted this way or that way because it doesn't work in, in Afghanistan. So it was, we, I had a great, wonderful, wonderful team. It was a lot of fun. What's your fondest memory of that time, of Af your time in Afghanistan? 
it spans a really long time. Essentially, it's my entire adulthood. There were different moments for different things, but you know, on a personal experience of like just discovering how beautiful visually even that our country is, is a place called Bandamir. It's these lakes in a in the central province of Bamiyan. And it you get there and it doesn't feel like you're on earth. You I'll send you photos of it. <laughs> it's uh, it's out of this world and it's it's not just what you see with your eyes to me there's something about afghanistan that you feel in your bones i don't know if a scientist needs me to give some kind of explanation and oftentimes i sound a little too hoo hoo in love with afghanistan i like to give the answer of like well what about the rich minerals and you know crystals that that fill these mountains like maybe that has a physical effect on us and maybe that's what it is Maybe I'm not just, you know, googly-eyed in love with this place randomly. Maybe there's something physically magical in Afghanistan too, because we've got like tons of minerals just in, and we're surrounded and encompassed by mountains. So maybe that's a part of it too. But that, that feeling, that actual physical feeling, that happened every time I relanded in Afghanistan, if I had gone on a break or if I went to visit home. So that's not a particular moment, but that exact feeling is if I could like bottle that up and have it daily, I would. It's, it's, that's my favorite feeling of Afghanistan is the landing back. That's beautiful. And I do look forward to seeing those photos, if you would share. Definitely. For me, this has been a great conversation. Thank you for everything. Is there a territory that we didn't cover that you would like to? I would like to say something about if anyone's listening and meets a newcomer Afghan, because there are going to be quite a few in, and they're spread out in different communities in the United States and everywhere else. And when I was saying earlier, you know, that one big gift that anyone can give us as Afghans is to remember that we're all individuals with different individual stories. Uh, another thing that I'd love for people to remember, especially if they're going to come across newcomers is you're going to be met with gratitude. And that gratitude is for safety, security, the welcoming, and that's great that you're giving it to them. I would love if part of what's on your mind is compassion for what they've had to leave behind and that you're not just meeting someone who's grateful to be safe. You're also meeting someone who's been just heavily traumatized by having to walk away from everything they knew. And this is something we all know in theory but that I think we put out of our mind because we'd like to reclassify this person as someone who's now safe, now they're fine, their family's okay, let's just be grateful and you're the lucky ones. And coming from that background myself, please know that they've had to give up growing up. Their children will not grow up where they're from. These families more than, more than likely have given up jobs that they loved, they've given up access to their extended family. And I'm not saying look at them with pity, but please keep this in mind too, because they will, I know Afghans, approach you with a sincere gratitude, but there's a lot of pain behind that. And if we can just be a little more compassionate to that, I think the whole refugee experience could be a little less about constant gratitude and gratefulness and shutting out what what's happened to them. And we can actually support them in healing into whatever their life looks like from now on. It's wonderful. I think compassion and empathy are the keys, you know, and I think you being able to, to convey that in that manner, again, I think is, is really important. So thank you for adding that. Thank you. Um, absolutely. So the name of the podcast is The Follow. Yes. And, and we are finding, you know, I think we're, the goal is to expose people to different cultures and different perspectives and, you know, people who they, you know, they may not follow. So one of uh, our questions for our guests, for you, is, well, who, who do you follow? Who is doing things that you see and acknowledge as very positive and you sort of you maybe take them as a, a role model or just, you know, even if not, even if it's something, you know, you know, just who's, who's on your radar. Um, I've got, I've got a few. There are, there are different contexts. There's a young woman named Pashtana Durrani and she leads a 
education program in Afghanistan. She's working around what's happening and getting children access uh, to online learning. And then on beyond online learning, she's incredible. She's a friend of mine as well. So I'm lucky enough to have conversations with her about what she's doing. There's a woman named Mabuba Siraj, who I, I know as well. And she's an Afghan woman who decided to stay and be there in Afghanistan, whatever happens to support the women that she leads in her, in her organization. You know, there's Dr. Sarmast leads the Afghanistan National Institute of Music. So the symphonies and the, and the orchestras that he led, he, you know, instead of just breaking down and being, and sitting in the sadness of what's happened, he got all his students out. He worked night and day to get them out. And they're all not only safe in Portugal right now, but working on reassembling the orchestra so that Afghan, he has protected Afghan music in a way that, that is safe. The value of it, I can't even put into words. So there are a lot of heroes that you, yeah, I don't, wouldn't say that you have to look very hard for them, but yeah, I wish that they had, they had more space on those headlines so that we'd all know about them. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree. You gotta, you gotta counter the bad with the good. And finally, where can, can we all follow you? I have a little Instagram called Miss Mina Cobble, M-I-S-S-M-I-N-A-K-A-B-U-L. So Miss Mina Cobble is where I try to do what I was telling you earlier, to share whatever photos I can dig up in my phone and that I've had and the stories that are attached to them and help people connect love to Afghanistan and be reminded of why, why are we so upset and who are we fighting for? And what is this, where is the cause? We're all in the fight and in the argument and in the discussion, but let's get back to the why, the who. Um, so that's what I do on Instagram. And then I'm pretty active on Twitter as well, where I'm a little less rainbows and, and lollipops on Twitter. On Twitter, I will, I feel the need to be there to counter a lot of, a lot of misleading ideas that, that don't speak in favor of, of the Afghan citizens' needs. So I will... I will use what I have and all I have is my voice. So I use it on, on Twitter as well. And I'm at Mina Sharif on Twitter. That's wonderful. And I think using all that you have, your voice is loud and resounding and <laughs> in a good way. No, I, I take that as a me. <laughs> Thank you. No, that's uh, I mean, it's, I, I love that perspective again. So please continue to do so. And hopefully others will follow. But Mina Sharif, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you um, on the follow. And we really appreciate your time and all that you're doing and continued success. And please, please keep us posted on everything that's happening in your world. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for even just having this, um, this space. It means, it means the world, but for you to uh, have me on it, it was, it was really a pleasure. It was great talking to you. Thank you. Thank you, Mina, for being here and taking the time to share a little bit of your world with us. And thank you all for listening to The Follow, a multicultural podcast from creative agency Sanders Wingo. For show notes, past episodes, or to get notified when a new episode comes out, visit thefollowpodcast.com. If you like the show, please rate and review it on your favorite podcast platform. It boosts the show's visibility so other people can find and enjoy it too. We'll catch you on the next episode.